Sorry about the slight delay. This is a very good way to start a uh, program on missions because if any of you have ever done mission trips, there's nothing that uh, acts quite like it's supposed to as you're uh, trying to make one of these things happen. Okay, right there. Um, what I'd like to do in the next two minutes, just briefly introduce Norbert, tell you the, the kind of... Uh, program that we'd like to do here and then if there's things that would be more helpful for um, your needs as we're talking we can change it uh, as we're going. Um, <clears throat> I, my name is Mark Ranzinger. I've spent seven years in Africa and during the time one of the people who came to visit me and was very helpful was Dr. Norbert Schwer. Uh, we developed a friendship. We actually uh, came to know each other in medical school and uh, Norbert has a real burden for uh, short-term missions. And so this uh, uh, subject today will discuss kind of the theology between, behind short-term missions. Some people think it's a waste of time. Why do you go? Why do you spend so much money? What will it accomplish for the people over there? What is it gonna do for the person um, going? Norbert has made I don't know, at last count, 40, 50 short-term mission trips to all different parts of the world. So part of it is gonna be the theological and practical idea behind short-term missions. And then he's gonna talk um, about some specific trips, show some pictures. We wanna leave the last 10 or 15 minutes open for questions. Um, what I'd like to do as we get our session going is start uh, with a, a short text, and I'm only gonna use two words from this text, and that's found in Matthew 28, and uh, that's where Jesus says, go ye. And uh, what does it mean for us here in the 20th century? How do we fulfill that command, go ye? If you can't go as a full-time missionary, is there something short of going as a full-time missionary that can be a, a service for people around the world and also for your church? So what I'd like to do is have us just start with a word of prayer and then I'll turn over the remainder of the time uh, to Dr. Schwer. Lord, it's been uh, such a blessing to be here at these meetings already as we have these few minutes to talk uh, together about how we can fulfill that commission of yours to go we, ye. We ask that you'd be with us in our thoughts and our discussions and your name would be blessed as a result of our time together is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, thank you for the kind introduction, Mark. Just a couple of items. I'm going to get a list started. One of the things that I think is most beneficial for a meeting like this is to actually sort of start sharing and pooling our resources. So the way I can do this for you and you for me is if you would give me just a way to connect to you and I'm not sure whether the people in charge of the conference would do that anyway. But if you'd please share your email address um, and phone number. I'm not good at calling because I don't like doing phone tag, but I'm pretty good at answering emails. Um, <clears throat> I sort of do not like these types of meetings and sort of got backed into it. Mark said, oh, I'm so excited about going to the Amen conference. I really want you to come. And I'm thinking, no, I don't want to do this. And I, my, my very available excuse was, I don't have any more vacation days left. And Mark says, oh, no problem. I'll just give you some of mine. You go. So I feel like I sort of kind of backed into this because really, truly, I don't feel like an expert. If you have done mission work before, 
as Mark just indicated, you, you, you are at the front lines and things do not work well at the front line. Frequently you have to be very adaptive and change the program. So it makes you feel like you're very inexperienced every time you do a trip. You do a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, but in the end things are going to work out significantly different than you had imagined them. But I had done about 60 trips and I guess Mark thought I could at least talk about some of my experiences. I do not like this theoretical stuff. I'm not good at it. I don't feel really called to do it. I'd rather like to go out and do a trip. So if that's what you like, let me know and I'll gladly sign you up for one. Um, so not feeling like I'm the expert, I brought my coach and I expect him to interrupt me and to me straight, uh, set me straight <laughs> and I expect you to do the same. I think that there's a lot of expertise, a lot of gifts represented in this room and I just want you not even get my attention if you have something on your heart and mind just say it please. When I was eight years old our pastor asked us to write on a little card what we would like to do when we grow up and I thought I'm gonna just please the man to death today and I wrote on the, my card I want to be a missionary so he kept me back after the religion class and said Norbert I want you to stick to that thought that's a really, really good choice. And I had totally forgotten about it until years and years later, here I'm caught doing some of these things that uh, back when I sort of wrote on the card to please somebody else. During my baccalaureate degree at Bogenhofen, uh, an evangelist showed up. He was born in Switzerland, but had been in the US for many, many years. And he came and did an evangelistic series for me. I was 17 years old and he really, really, really spoke to my heart. I was baptized age 15, but that's when I had my spiritual baptism. And one of the things that he said, it really touched me and I tried it and it worked. He says, you don't have to worry about setting your alarm clock tomorrow morning. You ask God the night before to wake you up when it's time for you to worship him and God will wake you up. It may be at 3.30 in the morning because you have a lot of praying to do that day. And it may be 10 minutes before you have to run off, but God will wake you up. And I tried that and it worked. And even now, if, when I wanna have a special time with God, I say, you wake me up when it's time. And it's weird sometimes he wakes me up in the middle of the night, but you tried it. Anyway, so, I thought, and I always enjoyed when, when missionaries would come and tell about their big stories, and I'm thinking how much of that is true, but it was just so exciting to hear them being at the front line and to sort of have to live through these sometimes terrifying experiences, but always sort of come out praising God. And so I wanted to have part of that, and it was very egotistical. I wanted to be like that. I wanted to go and tell people those kinds of stories. After finishing my baccalaureate degree, I sort of always wanted to become a doctor. But my counselors back then told me, Norbert, you don't have what it takes. You're too stupid. Okay? And it's like something inside of me said, wow, prove them wrong. But for right now, I have really no options. They're not going to recommend that I go on. So at least let me study theology so I have a way to go and communicate to, do, to other people. And so I did, did a couple of years at Bogenhofen, I went to Cologne, uh, got my licence there, and then went on to Andrews University, uh, did my Master of Divinity there, and did very well, 
finished with honors, and people said, well, well, the folks from Oster came back and said, we want you as a pastor now. And I said, where were you when I really needed you? Because I had to pay for all my school bills on my hard labor, daily labor. And the, my advisors at Andrews said, Norbert, I, we know that you have this love for medicine. You're very smart. You graduate with all honors. You can do this. If you want, this is what's in your heart, go do it. So I changed. Went to Loma Linda and... Uh, do a lot of sitting <laughs> for four years, a lot of studying. And during that time, met up with a very, very unique individual. Probably a lot of you know Descartes. At the time, we just started out sort of one of the f charter student members of the SIMS organization, Student International Mission Service, I think is what it stands for. And we started doing little trips over to San Bernardino in the evening to treat and help people that had absolutely no access to health care at the time. And he sort of started my love for those types of activities. It was very neat to be involved. We prayed together, we prayed for our patients, we were able to help them, and that felt really good inside. And then I was asked to sort of participate in short-term missions, but really never took the time or had the courage to do it until in my senior year, uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Ken Rose, uh, now moved out to Portland, sorry, to Oregon, uh, whatever the little town name, I forget it. Uh, he invited me to come down to Chiapas, uh, southern Mexico. He had a brother-in-law uh, down there as a missionary and his sister. And two weeks over Christmas, we had a great time. There was a physician there, took us sort of by the hand and taught us a whole bunch of stuff. And that sort of got me started. And I'm thinking, wow, this is so neat. This is frontline. This is good. And you come back knowing that God is taking care of you in so many different ways that you will never figure out if you just stay home. So obviously there was this love that was born within me about wanting to do it again. I hooked up with different people, different medical trips. And you observe and you find out, well, <clears throat> this is not all that well organized. And part of it has to do is that you cannot prepare for every circumstance. But I was on one trip where uh, some non-Christian people were invited, obviously with the hope that they would sort of catch not only uh, the, the mission spirit, but also that they would catch our Christian view. Well, while we were sh sort of doing our theological seminar in the evening, they were down at the bar picking up girls and drinking and smoking and it's like the ministry just really, really suffered. So I went home from that particular trip. I'm thinking, you know, really, that wasn't good. And I think I could organize it better myself. And so the rest is history. First, I sort of hooked up with friends that I had made in medical school and during residency that I knew were overseas, such as uh, Mark. And so I had somebody at the other end that would sort of catch me. Okay, when I would travel there, obviously you would find out uh, what is it that we can bring, what expertise, what sort of materials. And then at the other end, there was somebody to receive you, to help you with the paperwork and make sure that the government was sort of okay and that you didn't get thrown in jail and all that good stuff. The, the, my, my, my love was for missions. And actually, Chris and I, my wife, we had signed up and had received the call to go to Papua New Guinea full time. Uh, however, 
we had sort of made preparations and then we get this call late at night and says, you know, folks, we would like for you to consider releasing the call. And obviously lots of question back and forth. They had found an older couple, not married, we had two kids. It would have cost a mission a third to get them over there and do the same work that we could have done. We had kids that needed to be educated, da da da. And so anyway, we released the call. And then also I come to find out as I traveled across the world is that as a surgeon, you sort of need a hospital at the other end that is functional to the point where you can actually do surgery. And there's not that many left in the world. And so I'm thinking at least I could be of help short term. I can be an assistant to our frontline missionary that is there full time. And the way I saw this functioning was not only do I come and encourage, I can find equipment that they need, find some funds for some of the projects that they needed to do. And so I thought that would be the way to go. To give this a little bit of a spiritual undermining, and this was not choreographed, uh, I was thinking about sort of taking the Great Commission as obviously a start-off point. God tells us to go, and we call it the Great Commission. And I ask you why. Now this is interactive. You can give me an answer if you have one. Why do we call it the Great Commission? It was Jesus' parting words. Okay, that makes it great. Jesus said it was sort of his final goodbye. What else? Go ahead. It was for the whole world. Does that depress you, make you excited? Does that overwhelm you? Have you ever, do you ever think about the magnitude of the task and you say, God, this is impossible. I can't do this. Yeah, some people say, you know, this was not said to me. I wasn't standing in that circle. You know, this was said to the disciples. So I really don't have any. And really, you know, he didn't speak to Norbert. I think he spoke to Don. <laughs> you know, he's much better equipped. He's doing OBGYN. He can deliver babies. I, you know, I, I forgot how all that works. So we obviously are comfortable here in our environment. And it's so much easier to just write a check and say, Mark, you go. Okay, God's given you all the gifts. You all have a wife that wants to go. You know, you, you got all the training. You've done it before. You go. And I want you to understand that that's very important. Don't ever stop giving to the ministries that you think need help and deserve help. And obviously part of what I've done here is to sort of show you my little spiel, my little deal. And I'm hoping that some of you will be touched and help us out financially as well. I am sort of startled every time I see this go command. I'm saying, where do you want me to go? How far do I have to go? And do I have to go everywhere? Because it's like a huge, huge task. And then you obviously think of a whole bunch of excuses, you know? I have two little children. I have really have a wife that needs comfort. She doesn't want to lay on, on a straw mattress, and she doesn't want to deal with fleas and bug bites, and she doesn't want to get malaria. You know? I mean, the list is obviously miles long of things that you could come up with that would disqualify you for mission service. God didn't say you go after you get an education. Didn't say you go after residency. Didn't say go after you have a wife and children. And 
didn't say go after you have sort of built your own little empire, okay? You got your house paid for, you got two cars in the garage, your kids are through college, and you got money on the side, okay? No worries about that big cliff coming towards the end of the year about economic disaster, okay? And something that I see repeatedly when I go and travel around the world, there's people out there in the ministry that failed at everything else they've done. And if, you know, if, if you ask him, what's your backup plan, Norbert? I'm thinking, you know, if I can't be a doctor anymore, if I'm too shaky to cut straight, you know, I can always be a pastor. I can always be a missionary. Because it's instant status and it's instant security. There's a big church structure that supports you. You have a regular salary income. You're insured against health problems and all that. And people respect you. Pastor so-and-so and this missionary so-and-so. But that's not what God asks you to do. He doesn't say try everything else when you fail, then become a missionary. So, how far should you go? Where should you go? When I prepare these short-term missions, there's so much that has to come together that I don't have any control over. And I'm just going to tell you a few of my experiences. Uh, not too long ago, I was ready to uh, put a trip together, getting ready to put a trip together to go to Zambia. Two days before I left, I had just, uh, we had switched our practice around just a little bit, and I had started operating on a new outpatient surgical center. And words sort of travels, nurses talk to each other, doctors talk to each other, we talk in the operating room. Well, you're going on a mission trip, doc, right? Yeah. Where do you hear? Well, in the OR. Uh, you need anything? Yeah. What do you got? Well, we've got four boxes of, of that special stuff that the dentist puts in so you don't feel him uh, drill and, and yank your teeth out. Um, well, sure. We'll take it. And then she says, and we got 200 lenses. They're close to being outdated, and the suits are going to come around in a couple of days. We need to get rid of them. Lenses? What do you mean? Well, you know, those things when you have cataracts that they put back in so people can see. And, well, okay, I'll take him. Don't know exactly what for yet, but yeah, I'll take him. So we made extra room. I paid a little bit extra money to actually get it on the luggage because nowadays the airlines really squeeze you on that end. And I come to Zambia and we sort of start unpacking. And here I'm finding out that she just recently had hooked up with uh, an ophthalmologist in the capital of Lusaka that really needed help because she was reaching out to the totally poor that never could afford not even the surgery nor the lenses. Plus, we have this huge eye institute which I had forgotten about right outside Lusaka. So, obviously, sometime towards the end of the trip, we stopped in, we dropped off the lenses, and they were just so blessed to get that gift. Now. I had no foreknowledge or forethought that there was that need, but God did. Amen. I go out to the ministry, we start sort of unpacking the medicine, and here's our dentist sort of, it was weird because you get this sense that he had something to confess, but he didn't know quite to do it. And so he's just sort of hmm, humming around, helping this, and then he would stop again, come close to me, and wouldn't say anything. We chit-chat a little bit. He says, what's going on? What's on your heart, brother? And he says, Norbert. We do not have anesthetic for our dental procedures. We are totally flat out of money. 
And I'm looking at him and says, brother, God is taking care of you. I've got four boxes. Before you call. Before you call. That's exactly the truth. And you know, it's like, I sort of brag about to, to the people that come to those evening meetings. I say, you know, here you're going to get the only dentist way out in the bush where no dentist will ever come to you. He's going to come to you and he's going to give you anesthesia when he takes your bad teeth out. And this time, we couldn't have said all that because it wasn't any there. God takes care of us. We were traveling to Peru on a plane, little plane from South Bend to Atlanta. The plane had left Atlanta two hours late because big storms were moving through, coming to South Bend two hours late, and that's all the layover we would have had to catch our plane in Atlanta going on to Lima. So I'm already praying my heart out. I'm saying, God, you've got to fix this. I can't fix it. I can't stop anymore. I can't make preparations to take the next flight. And even if we did, what would happen to our luggage? So I'm praying my heart out. I have 12 people on this plane. I says, you guys better pray. We're in trouble. We get on the plane. Still, terrible rain, even in South Bend. Worst storms in Atlanta. We fly down there, bumpity, bumpity, bump. I call, I mean, talk to the, the, the hostess on the plane. I says, we've got 12 people. We've got a very, very tight connection. Actually, we're going to arrive the minute the plane's going to leave to Lima. Would you please make an announcement? <laughs> she just starts cracking up. She says, I've made those announcements a gazillion times. They never work. Okay? People are always in a hurry. So I said, would you please? I'll pray for you. Would you please? She did. It's the only time I've ever seen it work. The 12 people on our trip walked off that plane without anybody getting up. Okay? We got off the plane, we grabbed our handbags, and I sent the fastest runner. If those of you have been in Atlanta, you have to go like downstairs, you take a tram. We were at A terminal, I had to go all the way to C. I ran, somebody said, you run, you're the healthiest. You go, and, and obviously I had this 76-year-old lady with me. She says, Norbert, I'm gonna have a heart attack. I'm gonna have, just relax. <laughs> you and I are gonna walk slowly over to the terminal. We're late for the plane, so be it. So we walk, we walk, we go into C terminal. We only hear the voice overhead saying, Mr. Schwer, Mrs. So-and-so, you're holding up the flight. We're going to offload your luggage, da-da-da-da-da. And so we just watch. She says, no, but I'm going to have a heart attack. No, you're not going to have a heart attack. We're going to have a great time. <laughs> so we come to the gate. And here the gate agent was just really, really, really upset with us. She was angry. She says, you're holding up this flight. I says, ma'am, we worked this f and, and walked as fast as we could. Your own plane was late picking us up. Here we are. We sit on this plane. I was drenched because they walk you to this little open area from this little plane into the airport. I'm sitting down. I'm enjoying the air conditioning, the cooling effects of the air conditioning. I'm saying, Jesus, we are on the plane, but our luggage is never going to make it onto this plane. And if we're down there without our luggage, we have nothing. We have no ministry of nothing to give. Okay? Usually, I let people take one bag of their own stuff, and then I pack another bag for them. So we had 12, actually 13 with my own two bags, huge bags of medical supplies. So I pray, God, you got to fix it. So there's four names announced over the speaker of the plane saying, please identify yourself. And then five minutes go by, the same four names, please identify yourself. If you don't, we have to offload your luggage. And so there's this little flame of hope inside of me saying, Jesus, you're working on this, aren't you? <laughs> it took 25 minutes to offload that luggage. Okay, those four people missed their flight. And during those 25 minutes, guess what? When we arrived in Lima, our luggage was there.
Okay? Now, this is God working for you. You have no control. And it really, really, really does miracles to your prayer life. Because you will pray very, very, very sincerely. I can't fix it. Only God can. Now, if you've ever worried about God not knowing you personally and not taking care of you personally, this story will convince you otherwise. We've traveled, actually the same trip. We were on the boat going out into the tributaries of the Ukayali River, treating people sort of on the way, different villages, beautiful experience. The captain we were, told us in the morning we're going to have almost a full day trip to get to the next village. So just relax, have a good time. About three, four hours into the trip, he turns the boat around and sort of parks on the other side of the river. And so, you know, you have a little concern, what's going on? We weren't supposed to stop here, so something wrong with the boat. No, he says, no, 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 I know this family here, they're Adventist. I've heard they're backslidden. Let's go and encourage them. We come, we walk about five minutes through puddles and fallen over banana trees and stuff like that. We come to their little hut. It's in shambles, about four feet off the ground. The, the rickety steps off those bamboo, the whole thing shook as these four big Americans <laughs> stepped onto this little hut. And so we talked to her, and yes, she had backslidden. And she was so glad that we would stop for her. It made her feel so important that we would travel all the way from the U.S., was her assumption, to come see her. She says, we're in big, big trouble. Why? Well, my son is near death. Well, where is your son? Can we see him? Yes, you can. And there was this little quarantine area with bed sheets that were filthy. And there was a stench. And there were flies. I mean, lots of flies. So we asked them, you know, she points back to this little corner and said, what can I see him? Now, I have to backtrack a little bit. This particular trip, I tried to be organized and get my bags packed like three, four days before so I can relax the night before. It was not so on that trip. I packed the night before. I had sent for some medicine. I would ordered some steroid pills just because there's a few diseases that you really need steroid pills for. Really. So the pills come in liquid form and in four glass bottles, okay? And what I take on my mission trips are soft walled bags because you can stuff them. And what I do is I put the medicine on the bottom, I put toys on top. Because sometimes you get caught and the guy wants to see what's in your bag. He opens the bag, he sees toys. Kids toys, fluffy toys, beautiful little toys, new toys <laughs> that people love to give you because they have 29 of them at home and don't need them anymore. <laughs> And he looks at you and says, hmm, what else in the bag? Digs deeper. By the time he digs deeper, I said, do you have children? He says, yeah. You want a toy? Yeah. Well, take two. He takes two toys. We zip the bag up and says, <laughs> OK? Has worked multiple times, and I don't consider it bribery. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. So I'm looking at my soft duffel bag and say, Jesus, this is never going to get there in peace. I'm going to leave it home. This little voice in the back says, no, you pack it. I'm going to do a miracle for you. Okay. So I wrap it in a towel, another towel, put plastic bags around it, throw it in two different bags just in case one would make it and the other one wouldn't. Totally forget about it. We have all this other stuff going on. God finally gets us there. We get, you know, we have to travel from Lima to Pucallpa in, 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 in little buses that were just totally overloaded, pothole roads. We come to the mission. The bags are thrown around from one area to the other, into a little boat, into the mission. And so the next day, we sort of tired, sort of start unpacking, and the missionaries just drool and say, ooh, and ah, look at all this beautiful stuff you guys brought. We will have medicine for months, and how many people we can help. 
Somebody comes up to me and holds these two bottles of steroids in my face. What are we going to do with that? I look at him. Oh, Jesus. What do you say that for? He says, oh, the bottles are not broken. They're glass. I'm saying, you know, it's a miracle. So I says, well, there's four bottles. Take one and leave the others here. We're probably not going to use that one. Okay? So now back to this little tent thing within this hut. I open the thing, and there is this most miserable creature sitting there. He looked emaciated, the size probably an eight-year-old boy, was 15. He had basically no hair left, just a little tuft here in the back, and his whole body was one big sore and blisters, infected pus everywhere. So what's going on? He has something that they call wildfire. Okay? Say it again? Pemphigus. Pemphigus, yeah. Okay? And, hey, man, I'm at the beginning of my surgical career. I slept through all of my dermatology. <laughs> and it's like, ooh, wildfire. Okay, so we got on the radio. We talked to our radio operator. says, you got to look this up. You got to call a few people. We have this boy here that looks like that. Oh, yeah, they call it Savahi something. Fuega Savahi. Is that it? Okay, so I remember correctly. And yes, there's a specialty clinic in Brazil. Actually, one of our Adventist doctors has been treating them successfully with tar and something like that, and herbs, uh, concoctionism. Anyway, well, we don't have that. What would it take to make this boy well? What do you think the answer was? Now, we look at this boy, and we says, how do you feed this child? He says, the only thing I can give him, I take rice, put it in a little cloth, and I squeeze it. And all he can do is take the dribbles of the juice, his mouth was full of sores on the inside. He could not swallow a pill even if you tried it. I knew nothing about that boy. God did. He protected the medicine on the way. He made me pack it. It came in liquid form even though I asked for pills. If you've ever doubts that God takes care of you, he does. He does. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Maasai people. Uh, the, 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 the line picture at the beginning, if you ever want to have a beautiful family trip and serve God at the same time, doing lovely things to people that really need it, that's where I took that picture in Maasai country. They're people, very tall, slender, and they think that God gave to them was all the cattle in the world. And if you own some, they say, please bring it back because they consider all theirs. They're very poor people. They're nomads. They're sort of forgotten by the rest of Kenya because they really have not studied and never participated in government, although now they're sort of stark. One of their traditions is to mutilate their female children. What's called circumcision, female circumcision. It's brutal, okay? It usually happens age 13 to 15. And they're taught that if they cry out, they fail the test. So while somebody is taking a rusty razor blade or stone rock at their genitalia to cut out their clitoris and whatever else they may accidentally cut out, they're taught not to yell out. 17% mortality rate. Okay? So here's this people that obviously need education. They're also lost. They know nothing about Jesus. So we go there uh, a couple of times a year. And actually, for those of you whose mouth have just started watering a little bit, we have another one coming up next year, March 10 to 24. Now, Mark, how am I doing on time? You're doing good. I'll, I'll give you the hand signals from okay. over here. What so, I'd like to do is save you the last 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And then I'll ask you some questions as well, and we'll open it up in general. But you're doing great. 
So what I do at the end of a trip, I sort of tell people, I enjoy photography myself, but, okay, there's sound to this. Anyway, so what I do is I collect all the pictures at the end of the trip and then sort of make them into a little slideshow. And that is my thank you to people that contribute. It is also my thank you to the people that actually go physically on the trip. And they'll go and show it multiple places. And then obviously they are your best PR people. So we arrive usually dead tired from jet lag, especially if we travel that far. And then the first duty is to sort of unpack everything and repack into smaller quantities. And then we go out and obviously we treat the needy people. And I'm just gonna let you be for a little bit and watch it. We try and take a dentist, uh, we have physical therapists. This particular trip we had optometry along with us. We do uh, counseling um, for communicable diseases. And we uh, obviously take those physicians that are interested in whatever specialty. But all of us obviously function as family physicians there. Uh, we do lumps and bumps when we go. Obviously, we take care of um, wounds that have not been taken care of before, clean them up. And Tropical ulcers, these people get bit by something, they start scratching, get infection, and poof, you have an ulcer. And then there's obviously those little bugs that bury under your skin, lay an egg, and make an ulcer that way. <clears throat> we try to involve our young people. Um, this particular trip, like I said, is very enjoyable because Kim DeWitt and her husband Kurt have been over uh, in Kenya for six years serving at Maxwell Academy and during those times she really has developed a love for the Maasai people and so she's organizing these trips and have a, has a lot of good connections at the other side. And she parks us, first we do a couple of days just locally visiting Maasai churches encouraging the brethren doing clinics for them in the afternoon. Um, I wish I could show you a follow-up picture. That baby actually uh, survived and did quite well in a year later, except for some bad contractions, uh, did quite well. Uh, she parks us right outside the Maasai Mara uh, in some very primitive conditions, tent. Obviously, we travel cheap. And then in the morning, we take off and travel through the game park, see God's beautiful creatures, work six, seven, eight hours in the clinic, and then travel back through the game park again in the evening when the animals are active. So it is just really a really fun way uh, to serve God. And these people are very stoic. They walk in with problems that you or I would just be screaming in pain and they just suffer. They don't know any other mechanism to take care of their problems and to just suffer. <coughs> this is Dr. Gordon Guild. <laughs> He had a good time. He is a DO, so he's trained to manipulate. And he would just lay his patients down wherever he could, straighten out their backs. And this little boy had an abscess on his back. Um, and we do a lot of touching and bonding. These children are needy, and it's a lot of fun to just be there and reach out to them and show them that not all Americans are bad, not all white people are bad. And I want you to know I say that intentionally because I've been in several places now where I see the child being frightened of me and sort of starting to act up. 
and then mom says something very harsh to them and immediately they behave. And so I asked my interpreter, what did they say? Did, did you just say the white man's gonna eat you or take you away if you don't behave? And that's exactly what mom would have said. So there's obviously all this fear built in, these strange people showing up and wanting to do all these fancy things to you. I think God makes beautiful people. And to see him side by side, this lady was blind with cataracts, but she understood love. We visited a um, boarding school uh, that's part of the uh, Maasai Development Project, uh, and there are 200 students there. Uh, a little bit more, over half of them are young girls that have found out that they can safely run away and be sheltered there. Their mad fathers will come and knock on the door and say, well, because, I should explain this, when a, a young woman is given into marriage, the father receives the dowry, which is paid, obviously, in cattle, which makes them wealthy. So they want to give their daughters away as soon and as quickly as possible because it means wealth to them. And then they have to go through this uh, ceremonial uh, mutilation and circumcision. And so these young girls have found out that there's this safe haven, and they run to the school, and we sort of protect them and shelter them and bring them up. And you can see that they are well taken care of. They have a smile on their face, and they're being cared for. a nice time of uh, bonding. It takes $30 a month to sponsor one of these students. Uh, four, M it's the, the numeral four, MDP, Maasai Development Project org is uh, their website. If you're interested in looking that up, uh, it's a beautiful ministry. Uh, and uh, if you have financial resources, uh, they would love to have you participate for the numeral 4mdp.org is their website. They also maintain, and that's the trick with the Maasai people, they'll never come to a meeting like this, okay? They're too proud, they don't have time. Maasai people you have to visit. You have to sit down and visit with them, go into their huts. And what we basically do is we give something for free and then they feel a little bit more obliged when the Bible worker comes to their door. They says, you know, this was my church, my ministry has just come and, and served all you here. And then lend them an ear about the, about the real ministry, which is to obviously connect them to have a relationship with Jesus. So the frustrating part with this particular ministry is that you never get to see the harvest. Never. You only get to plant and throw the seed out and sometimes water. But there's Bible workers there that for $50 a month stipend, they will go and do the harvesting for you. And that's obviously another need that uh, mdp.org has. And the neat thing, and I'll say that again later, my blessing is not only to participate and do something nice for people and help them with their diseases and medical problems, I see missionaries birthed on every trip, okay? That's one of the big benefits of short-term missions, is that you see young children participate and catch it. Okay? I mean, truly catch it.
and they for the rest of their lives will support the ministry. They may not ever physically go back and do another mission trip or even go long term, but they will always have a heart for missions and they'll pitch in, even if it's just writing a check at home and praying for you. And this is how God touches my heart, obviously through people. And then he just paints the most beautiful creatures and sceneries for you. So I should ask the children, do zebras have white stripes in a black body or black stripes in white body? Ha ha ha. You think about it, you can tell me tomorrow. There is a right answer and a wrong answer. This is the animal that kills most humans in Africa. We always think it's the big cats. Actually, if you go and include insects, it's, it's obviously the mosquito. This is the best part of the presentation. Just give me. <laughs> okay. is, is, was, that, was that the total time that you just? No, no, no. Just. Okay. <laughs> Those are flies. She had just had a meal, a blood meal, and the flies are sort of cleaning her up. Eating, eating the leftovers. This guy is very infatuated. You can see it by the red ears there. Very interested in uh, taking that relationship. Very hard to see as a serval cat. And this is the national bird of Zambia, the purple-breasted, no, lilac-breasted roller. And here's a spider, wolf spider, with a whole bunch of little young ones on her back. And a very rare animal to see, a leopard. You took these pictures? Uh, most of them. Say it again. How good is that camera? Well, thank you. What a compliment you've paid me. It's the guy that's holding the thing. <laughs> All righty. I've whetted your appetite. Mark says we need to move on. Uh, there's got to be a little bit more later on here. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Jonah. Okay. Um, all of you got up this morning, and really none of you knew what your day was going to be like. And I talked to Mark in the car yesterday about we embellish stories. I want you to know I'm going to embellish the story just a little bit, and you will not find that in the Bible. You can name the guy Farouk. He just got up that morning. He was a sailor, rough-looking guy, a little bit like myself, sinewy muscles. You know, he had to climb up the mast and sort of trim the sails, whatever sailors do. He got up that morning. He did his, you know, BM and peed around the bush and took a little bit of water, washed his head. He had all that he owned in a little bundle, took that on his back. He had already waved his girlfriend goodnight the night before because he was going to get out early. He had to go all the way to the harbor knew nothing what was going to happen to his day, right? So he goes and does all the preparatory work in the boat, and down, you know, he sees this stranger looking for whatever, talks to that captain, the next one, the next one, finally comes to their boat, and they shake hands, they agree about something, he gets on the boat, everything looks just fine, just an extra guy on the boat, maybe a little extra money for the captain, for them. So they sail out, you know, morning wind, offshore, beautiful breeze. If you ever traveled to Mediterranean, it's a beautiful place to travel. Everything looked like it was going just fine, okay? And out of the middle of nowhere, what comes? 
huge storm. Whoa, where did this come from? How did I deserve this? So obviously the first thing to do is to do everything humanly possible. And I want you to know I do the same thing. We talked about that too in the car yesterday. When is it that you actually break down and say, God, I need help? Okay, here the storm shows up out of the middle of nowhere. Oh, how do we deal with the storm? We'd rather take a loss and throw all the goods in the water, row harder, try and get to the shore, and they try all they can, and what happens? The storm gets worse. Then what happens? Come on, you know the story. They start praying. Did that work? No? Then what happens? Who's it? So they throw lots, and then, oh, it's Jonah. Oh, who, who are you? What are you doing here? You were just a stranger this morning. What are you messing with my life for? Hey, I have a commission. I just didn't tell you, okay? I believe in the God that can send a storm like this, and it frightened them really, really badly, okay? Then what happens? He goes down and lays down and takes a big nap. Finally, the captain says, what is wrong with you? We're about to die here, and you're lying on a bunch of blankets and are not concerned about dying? Come up, help. And so what have we got to do, Jonah? What do we have to do to get rid of this big storm? You talk to your God. What are we going to do? What does he say? And even these rough sailors say, no, we can't do this. You're human. We can't throw you in the water to die. So what do they try? Try even harder. Okay, oh, I'm throwing, throwing some more. Finally, they run out of options. They throw him in the water, right? Sailors had no idea about Jonah's commission until he spoke. The captain had no idea that God was sending an enlisted man on his boat. Jonah's commission was not showing. And I want you to know your commission is not showing. Okay, it is very, very rare that you do something so extraordinary that people say, man, you must be a Christian. Tell me about it. <laughs> Has that happened to you? It's extremely rare. Although, when you read Peter 3.15, it says, your hope should be so bright that when people ask you, give them a reason. Now, how many times has it happened to you? To me? Okay, so obviously my commission is not showing. So how do people find out that I'm hiding from my boss and not saying the words I should be saying? Okay. The interesting part is that you read in chapter 4 that Jonah thought about this. But he says, I'm smarter than God. I can hide. I can run away. Okay, what does he say in chapter 4? He gets so mad, he gets so mad, he says, God, ugh, I knew it. Did you ever get mad at God because he did what God does? You know, he had mercy on these rascals. He changed his mind, and he made Jonah look like a fool. And Jonah says, I can't handle it. I am so mad at you, God, I want you to kill me. Finish me off. I'd rather die than live with this shame. Wow. Now, to me, the neat part is that God has no problem with Jonah's anger. Okay? So, if you really feel angry, express it. God wants a very intense individual. He'd rather have an honest, intense, angry individual than an indifferent one. Okay? God cannot work with indifference because you don't care. And I actually think that that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay? When you do not care, God cannot work with you. When you're really angry, all he needs is 
turn you around, go that way. And he's got Saul turning into Paul, okay? So he thinks, I'm smart, I can run. I have a commission, but nobody knows, okay? Nobody but me knows. So I can walk down from where I'm right now, down to the harbor. Nobody will know. If I don't tell, it won't show, nobody will ask. So how far do you have to go? Do you have to go overseas like Mark did or I do sometimes? Does the commission imply that? It says to all the world, but does it say you have to go all the way to the world? No. How far do you have to go? When Mo uh, Moses, when Jonah walked down from wherever he stayed to the harbor, he met tons of people on the road. None of them knew. But there were opportunities on the way. Maids, cooks, shepherds, co-travelers on the path, there's time to talk. You sat next to people in your car, on the airplane, on a bus, when you came here. They don't know. And they're all headed to where? If those sailors would have died that day, they would have headed to the bottom of the ocean without ever knowing that there's a loving God upstairs that really cares for them and wants them to turn around and have a good life. If we don't tell, if we don't truly care, they will perish. Okay, and what I do as a physician is so insignificant. Okay, I may be able to alleviate some pain, suffering, and may be able to add a few months to a person's life that otherwise they wouldn't get. But unless we connect them to Jesus, and unless they develop a relationship with their Savior, it's all for nothing. So we don't have to go very far. You can go to school, the person sitting next to you, Every opportunity, let's keep on our minds that that's a person that may need to know about how to connect to Jesus Christ. So, where are you headed? Nineveh or Tarshish? God asks you to go every day that you do not take that commission seriously and go. And like I said, it's just this close. Okay, I can talk to this person today and encourage her to have a relationship with Jesus. That's how far you have to go. One personal contact. Every day that you do not take that commission seriously, you're really headed for Tarshish. Okay? Now, we like the Jonah story because it's sort of cute, right? Jonah, in the end, gets away with running away God sends this whale to sort of bail him out. And then he gets a second chance, and he finally does. And then, wow, I mean, I've not yet had a preacher tell me that 120,000 people turned around after 40 days of preaching. Okay? But we sort of get all, I mean, our whole story sort of wrapped up in the life of Jonah. God was just concerned about Jonah. No, God's perspective is a whole lot bigger than Jonah. Okay? Now, we got to remember, the Ninevites were not Israelites, right? Were they God's people? No. So how come they figured in God's plan? Okay? See? And we sometimes forget. Okay, we like to go to amen conferences where we're all the same, thinking the same, do all those good feely things, and say, yeah, I feel empowered. Now. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. 
but that's sort of maintenance, okay? It's like oil in the machine, and that's very important because an oil machine travels better, faster, longer. But he says it's really about the strangers over there, they know nothing about God. And God was concerned about the sailors and about the captain, and not just about people. He says there's so many cattle in that town. And then if you really think that our God is not big enough to take care of you, he, he, Jonah, when he's bickering and mad at God, says, you, God, you did exactly what I expected you to do. Makes me mad, makes me look like a fool, and I hate it. God says, okay, the sun is shining too hot. I'll give you a vine, protect you. The next day the vine dies, God says, whose vine is it? What right do you have to get angry at me? God even cares for the plants, inanimate life. Where are we going, friends? Are we going to Nineveh or Tarshish? Then we're all done? No, we'll have questions and answers and we'll still bring in some of the things. We'll give you action, a minute and a half. Okay, well, this will take longer than a minute, so you go for it. What I'd like to do is give a chance to the audience to open up. I'd like to start out, I'm going to ask you six questions, Norbert, and I'd like you to roughly give a one-minute answer to each question. What do you hope those who go with you will get out of a mission trip? Well, see, I'm glad I'm not in charge of that department, okay? When I go on a mission trip, I'm not in charge of creating your happiness or creating your experience. What God asks me to do is lead in the capacity and the gifts that He's given me. So what I do is I invite people, and I pray very hard that the right people will show up. Because one sand in the gearbox, one grain of sand in the gearbox can really, really hurt the whole trip and make a whole bunch of people uncomfortable. And I've seen it happen where one person would really make it a very difficult experience for everybody else. So I pray a lot, but what a person gets out of that particular mission trip is truly between that person and God. Now I'll try and facilitate and I'll try and do whatever I know how to do to make it the best possible experience. Because I want them to come back. I want them to get fired up. I want them to do it again. Not necessarily with me, although I would like that. <laughs> But any other mission trip, any other outreach ministry, you don't have to go far. You can do it at your church. Anyway, I really leave that up to God. I want to ask you a question in the words of Judas. Judas said to Jesus, why this waste? Could not have this money gone to help the poor? There are some people that argue against short-term mission trips saying it's an incredible amount of money for a very short exposure over there. How do you answer that question when someone brings that up to you? I sort of skipped to the slides that will deal with that. Okay, one of the ministries I was asked to help with was this Tijuana getaway weekend thing that was going on in Loma Linda. I never really signed up because a variety of things, mostly because I was too busy and I thought I had bigger fish to fry. But I found out that it was basically a getaway for physicians to take their mm, illegitimate sex partners down across the border and have a good weekend. Now, I know of a ministry that has painted the same church in southern Peru three times in one year, just so that they can write off the trip going to the Galapagos Islands. Okay? Mission tourism is really, really, really finding its niche in the world, okay? Because you can write off a little bit, you can have a good time, you really don't have to work all that hard if you don't want to. 
Okay, you may have to do absolutely nothing on that mission trip, but stand around. Anyway, yes, we're all wasted time and resources. However, many of the trip, many of the people that make these statements, when I ask them, "What's your experience? Where have you served?" Uh, uh, okay, so talk to people that really have been at the front line and know a little bit about and have done it. So, yes, local talent could do it cheaper, better. Just send the money, stay home. Personally, there's some consideration. I've tried to break this down for you. If you send a full-term, long-term missionary, five, six years, there's a tremendous amount of cost involved in getting them launched, okay? Not just to them personally, but also to the organization. I talk a little bit to AFM, okay? Tremendous cost involved, especially if there's family involved, children, stuff like that, to get them started. So I broke it down just a little bit when you cover monthly needs, furlough insurance, vehicle repatriation costs, it's about 300K over six years, and that's conservative, okay? And you break that down, it comes down to about $1,250 a week. And when I take people on my mission trips, the week that I take them, usually, it's about $750 to $1,600, depending on where we go. Most of that is eaten up by the plane fare, okay? So it, the cost really is not that big of a difference if you break it down. Now, I just want you to know that the long-term missionaries are invaluable. I appreciate the commitment and the love that they have to throw into their project, that they're committed to take their whole family to the frontier and suffer in many, many ways that we cannot conceive. On the other hand, when they come back, they also tell me, you know, I miss my mate that does my clothing, that does my cooking, that does my garden. <laughs> Mark knows a little bit about that. Okay. What I like, and I've said this earlier, okay, what my blessing is, not only, yes, do I get to participate, be at the front line, get my prayers answered in a way that I can talk about later, I get to see new missionaries birthed, okay? And to me, that is just such a blessing. When a person comes on this trip, well, they're just a grad student trying to get through school, studying hard, they sort of, la, 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 well, you know, my dad has extra money, they sent me on this mission trip, here I am, help, you know, now what can I do for you? And they walk away, with a conversion experience of sorts, saying, I've seen the misery, I can no longer be the same person. Uh, we've obviously, in the US, we've won the birth lottery, okay? 99%, maybe, maybe that's too high a number, but over 90% of the people in the world do not live like we live in the US. Many fewer resources, okay? They're poor. So when you see this, it changes your life. You cannot ex be exposed to that misery and go home the same person, and that, I think, although I cannot prove it, if we can catch our young people early on in their life, early on in their life, as early as possible, they will catch that vision. They will catch that vision because God looks after that. It's a promise. He will touch their heart. And then for the rest of their life, they're missionaries. Now, they may not physically go on another trip, but they will always go and touch other people and know that they need a relationship with Jesus. So... What I bring, besides that, to the projects that I go to, I sort of bring the white face, okay? There's lots of patients that just show up because they want to see the white face, okay? They think that I've got something that they don't have, okay? No access to. And I'm, this is not anything cultural, okay? <laughs> it's that I've traveled a lot, and yes, I'm different, and so I come from America, from the big place. Even though I'm not American, they confuse me, because I sort of, anyway. That's what I can give to the project. A little bit of status and a little bit of the feeling this person has traveled so far. I am so important that this guy all the way from the U.S. traveled, sat in a plane, sat in a bus, all kinds of stuff, came out into the middle of nowhere 
and it's treating my snotty nose, my infected eyes, and the sore on my bottom. That's in a very, very, very tiny way, a little bit like Jesus did for me. Traveled all across the universe, gave up the best of the best of the best that I cannot even imagine to come and make salvation possible for Norbert. Now, there's obviously things that are not available locally. When I traveled, when I traveled, you know, to Rwanda, Mark told me, I need this, I need this, I need this. And obviously, you try and get it together and bring it. I usually have a little bit of extra money that I've collected from people such as yourself and say you have a project that this would, you know, help. Um, the other thing is that you can help with the local ministry. You can sort of get a feel for where it's going, what it needs to do uh, to grow in the right direction. And then frequently you sort of have to be a little police. Okay, one of the things that, you know, you have to consider is that the people that give the money want to know what happened to the money. They don't want to go to waste. And so you have to deal a little bit with accountability issues and corruption issues. We've got different groups of people here. We have some people that are single, some who are in college or medical school, some with children. If different people would like to get involved in a short-term trip, is this open for people with children, people in college, older, retired? How do you choose who gets to come with you on trips? There are certain trips where we do not accept children, especially without their parents under 10, because obviously you have all kinds of considerations. Children do not know that what they touch, if it goes into their mouth, it makes them terribly ill and they can die. So it's that sort of stuff, okay? And if mom and dad's not around and the child gets ill, then I have to all kinds of difficult decisions to make. So yes, there's a cutoff. Usually I start out to let them travel alone around 15, 16. And obviously they need a letter of permission from mom and dad. It's okay and for me to treat and you know, all the liability issues and all that. There is ministries though, we've been on a ministry, involved in ministry on the Amazon River where the children are on a boat. We invite the whole family, okay, to come. And, and it's really neat because you sort of have this enclosed environment. Obviously, they need watchful care, but the other 50 people on the trip help. So, and then on, on the other side of the spectrum, I have the oldest one uh, that has gone with me was in her early 80s. And when we were in Nepal and she has pulmonary fibrosis and she couldn't muster the steep incline, I said, hop on my back. She never forgotten. And she was a whole lot heavier than I thought she was. <laughs> So, personally, I really don't set the limits. If God touches you, you know, people have the, the, the question about old age and dying issues, okay? Now, I ever, I, I was involved, not directly, but the trip after us was involved. There was one person that died on trip, and I would never, ever want to bring a body back home, okay? But were it to happen, were I to die, what other place can I think of that would be better than to be dying in the cause of God? doing frontier work, okay? Now, I hope it'll never happen because the mess of getting a body back over the cross the board and stuff like that, you know, I, I, I want you to know that that's a difficult decision. Hopefully there's a great, there's a, a people that struggle with this. I insure all the people I take on my trips, okay? And I take insurance enough that it could be flown home and stuff like that. So I do not set limits that way. If God calls you, if you have a passion, you want to go. And people tell me, you know, Norbert, I really, really want to go, but I don't have the money. And I say, you have a commitment, God will give you the money. It's never been an issue. Never. Okay? So commit in your heart. This is something I want to do, God. You've given me this passion. You've called me. Let me go. Help me to go. 
I'm going to take one question yes. from the audience. Uh, how, do, how do people who don't have medical backgrounds get involved with the medical team? And, like, how do you use them? How do you utilize them? I really appreciate that question. Excellent question. People think you're a doctor, you have a lot of gifts to give over there. And I'm saying, what does that mean? Because I don't feel any more important than the person that you know writes letter every day, types letters, or does whatever, janitorial work. It's the same. I go to God the same way. I'm safe the same way. So when we go on these mission trips, they always think, oh, I want to do the highfalutin stuff like the doctor. You know, I want to see patients and make them well. Well, sorry. We can't all serve at that level. Some of us will just have to direct traffic. Some of us will have to count pills and put them in little bags. And some of us will have to clean up. Some of us will have to wash the tools for the dentist. Sorry, instruments, okay, for the dentist and get it cleaned for the next case. So we will find ministries. The young children that you saw applying eye exams, they learned that on the spot. You teach them how to do it, they ran with that ministry. Four young people did the whole optometry stuff for us. So there will, and the neat part is, I worry about it, but God takes care of it. Amen. You know, you'd always say, oh, who's going to do this for me? You know, who's going to do that for me? And it's like, somehow... God makes sure that all the important spots in your ministry are going to be covered. And sometimes they're not. And then you know that it wasn't supposed to happen. Just relax. In the end, I'm not in charge. And the neatest moment for me is I actually said that to Mark yesterday. I've worked so hard. I've packed. I've done this. I've run back and forth and organized this and that. And then finally I get to sit on the plane. And I say, God, thank you. Because <laughs> I can't change uh, one single thing. I can't. It's done. This is what I've got. Please use it and make it a beautiful something or other that I can take home and share with the people so I get more people excited about it. Seven to sixteen hundred dollars per trip, seven to ten days. Norbert, for the sake of the tape, would you mention the website and the name of the organization? Yes. Uh, what I do is we, we I'm, I'm board uh, chair of our mission board at, 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 at uh, Stevensville SDA Church. I've also, because I have physician friends that are comfortable writing checks to our church because they go to their own church, I've incorporated, it's called globalvillageministries.org. Uh, you can look the website up or obviously the, the address is on the envelope that's stuck in there. Uh, we have incorporated so that people that feel uncomfortable writing a check uh, to a church can send their money there. Then what I do is three or four times a year, I ask the treasurer to just write a check to the church. The mission sits, uh, mission board sits down, and we sit down in our own personal board and decide how to distribute the money. So basically, this is the, the umbrella organization I work with is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The incorporation of this other thing is just to sort of give me a more neutral way to interact with other physicians and people in the community that they don't see the name church on their check because it makes them uncomfortable. We've got about two more minutes. What I'd like to do is open it up for some questions. We're going to finish on time. Lunch has a long line, so if you've got questions, you can stay by afterward, but we're committed to ending on time. Anybody else have a question? I don't have that commitment, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Go ahead, Gio. Thank you. Very good question. The neatest trip that I work with are actually uh, Brazil and Zambia. We have Bible workers there that organize a three-week 
evangelistic series, and we plug into the last week, sometimes the second last week, and it's really given an added boost to their ministry because, hey, come and see the doctors and dentists for free with anesthesia, and then come back for the meeting, and the attendance is huge, and so we actually sort of plug into the ministry, and at the end of that ministry, we see a harvest. I've seen as many as 100 people baptized in a day, and I'm telling you, if that doesn't touch your heart, there'll be few things that will. So it would be neat for all my ministries to work that way, where I plug into and I can actually see the harvest. Many places I go, it's hard soil. Nepal is very hard soil. It's a Hindu nation. You cannot even say the word God in public, and somebody may take you around the corner and do something to you, okay? So it's like what I can do there is to just keep ministering to the people like this quote that was shown this morning it cannot fail you love a person you show them god's love sooner or later there will be fruit i'm not there to see it somebody else will do the harvesting and i'm very comfortable with that so whenever i can yes i will plug in with the local church structure i will have bible workers do that footwork that i cannot do and stay behind and deal with the people that are actually interested in developing a relationship with jesus and I wish that all my ministries work that way. They're not currently doing that. So sometimes I just get to plant and Last throw question. seed. Um, you were mentioning that this one trip coming up is for two weeks, right? For mm -hmm. two days. It, does that include the travel time or is that the time in the area? It, 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 it really, really depends. Um, in, if you in, say there's going to be a 10-day trip, a 7-day trip, a 14-day trip, is that travel time included? Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is, and God will probably teach me this sooner or later, I sort of, I'm pushing my, uh, my limits physically. I'm doing five trips a year, and I'm barely, I just got back on the 19th from our Palawan mission trip, and, um, and I'm leaving again on the 13th to Nepal. And I have a ton of turnaround time. It takes about 25 hours just to sort through all the pictures and make a little slideshow like I showed you. And I have to send all the thank you notes. I don't have a secretary, okay? I did all this myself, okay? So it's like, I love this work. This is my passion. I will continue to do it. I wish I had more help. But sometimes I just take shorter trips because I can bring some help during that short period of time. I cannot do the whole thing. I cannot stay there for weeks at a time. Plus, if you make the trip shorter, the longer you make it, the fewer people can commit, especially professionals, okay? If I ask Don to take three weeks out of his practice, poof, you know, he's done practicing. So you ask for a shorter period of time, and hopefully people can sign up. Did that answer the question? Not exactly. Well, yes. Well, we'll, no, when I, say, when I say when the trip is, the dates I'm giving you is with travel time, okay? We leave the 13th, we're back the 25th. We leave the 3rd, we're back the 14th. If you've been blessed by this, I appreciate it. And the amen for the sake of Norbert. Don't, don't, don't. Amen. 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 And, Thank you. Uh, Thank if you. we can end Norbert with a word of prayer. Yes, we would. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being this awesome God that even though you have the whole universe as a canopy and a footstool, that you're mindful of 15-year-old boys in the middle of the jungle. And we are those little people lost out here in the jungle. We need your help. And again, we want to dedicate the resources that you've given to us to you in whatever ministry that you've called us. Give us a passion to love people like you did when you were on this earth. Give us a passion to carry forward your truth because that's the most important way to get people to connect to you. And if medicine can be the entry wedge, let us find 
that wedge and use it diligently and smartly. I pray for all these people here this morning. Bless them in a big way. Bless the rest of the conference uh, and endow us with your spirit. I pray this with all my heart. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.